0: So as we, as we saw last week as chapter 13 closed, we're reminded, I'm going to throw a big word on you here, that God is an imminent God. That means He's near. He makes Himself close. He, he makes Himself personal to us. We know that God is transcendent. There's another big word. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is other than us. He is Holy, holy, holy. He's the thrice holy God. So we know that He's separate from us, but at the same time, He's imminent. He's near. He has drawn near to people. So He he entered into this world, and He has dealings in it. He's not, uh, as the deist would say, kind of a, a God that's far off and kind of spun the world up like, a, like an old, I don't know, like a clock and is just letting it run out. That's not God. He's, that would be a transcendent God, but that would not be a God who's near. It would not be an imminent God. And so uh, we know that our God is near. He dwells with his people. Uh, Exodus makes this clear at seemingly every turn. But not only this, He is good. He is also good. He shows His nearness, His eminence, and He shows His goodness in how He leads a people. Notice at the end of chapter 13, He leads them by the pillar of cloud and fire, and He leads them away from temptation. Remember where it said that He, he directed them by a certain path so that they would not um, they would not become overly discouraged when they saw uh, the, the people... Uh, the peoples of the lands, and so they would not turn back. Uh, so we see how God cares for and, and, um, and draws near to his people. Let's just read this, uh, chapter 13, verses uh, 17 and following. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Itham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. And then here's this last verse that tells us about who God is. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God is a God who comes near to his people. He provides leadership and he shows his care in how he leads them not into temptation, right? Right? So, here's a couple things that we can learn and remember, perhaps, from chapter 13. While sin is never God's fault, He does often protect us from our own weaknesses. In other words, so whenever you sin, you don't ask, why did God do this to me, right? We say, well, if there's anything good in me, it's what God did. And if there's anything bad in me, it's what I did. But at the same time, lead us not into temptation is a prayer that God answers more than we realize, We don't even know how many times God has protected us from temptation. We don't even know how many times God has sovereignly protected us from something bad happening. Like even driving from here to Guthrie. How many times He has caused that person meeting us on the highway to look up from their phone while they were sending a text message just in time to bring it back over on their side of the road. In the same way, we don't even know how many times God has shielded us from the things that are even in our own hearts. He does that. He answers that prayer more than we even know. He's an imminent God. He's near, and He cares. And then secondly, the scandal of God's nearness. There's a real sense in which He has no business being near us. He is the God, after all, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, He's the God who dwells in unapproachable light. There's really a sense in which we should, we should just be left in wonder that God wants to have anything to do with us. Many people question how God could send anyone to hell. The question really is how God could send anyone to heaven. That's the real question. This, this, this man that I've created out of the dust and he, and he rises up and sees all of my goodness and chooses instead to rebel against me, why would, why would God uh, even be obligated to show grace to anyone? Well, we see in his character that he is a God of grace. He is a good God. We need to recover a sense of wonder that God draws near to us at all. He is a good and loving God who although he is far off and transcendent, he has brought himself near to us in the person and work of Christ. So in the scene though, chapter 14, that we are about to consider, we see a couple of other things. We get a vivid glimpse of God's nearness, care, and love for his people. Yet he displays this stuff in a way that doesn't sell his, his own holiness and his sense of justice short. He is at the same time just and the justifier. How can God justify sinful people? How can he get how can he get them? How can he let them go to heaven if he is really a just God who has a holy zeal and a hatred for sin? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ. These things are brought together. God is seen as being just and the justifier of the one who believes. So we'll see that in a moment. I might have given away too much. But the crossing of the Red Sea, or literally the Sea of Reeds, is understandable only through this lens. It is a display of God's love and His justice at the same time. God's love is never compromised by His holiness. Or vice versa, God is loving and holy, and how he can be both of those, friends, it will take 10,000 years in heaven for us to be able to ever plumb the depths of how both of those qualities can exist in the same God. So, here's what we learn. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Why don't we just begin to read in chapter 14, um, and we'll see uh, what we learn. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Exodus 14, 1, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephron, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will, pursue, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them and i will get glory over pharaoh and all his host and the egyptians shall know that i am the lord and they did so very very interesting stuff here's what we learn this isn't example this is not an example of god telling us his purposes for a past event this is an example of god telling us what his purposes are for something that's going to happen in the future. You see that he says, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will get glory out of what's about to happen." So this is a God who knows the future completely. He's we see God's sovereignty here. We remember that the scriptures say and I believe Psalm 34, "Our God is in the heavens; he does all that he pleases." Our God is a God who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, but He's also a God who is jealous for His fame. He will work every situation, no matter how dark or how bleak it looks, He will work it for His own glory, to spread His own fame, to do what it says in Habakkuk 2.14, so that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God is about to move and he's going to move in such a way that the Egyptians are going to know what kind of God he is. And the Israelites are going to know what kind of God he is. But the people have a wrong view of God. And friends, if we're honest, we wake up every morning tempted to think of God wrongly as well. We're tempted to think of him as a, as a, as a God who's out to get us or as a God who really doesn't care that much about sin, or whatever the case may be for for each of our different hearts. But here's what we learn here as we continue to read, beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? In other words, we're about to lose a whole bunch of labor. We can't let them get away. Gonna going to take a hit to our efficiency here. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. So now Pharaoh is about to get in the mix personally. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and the army, and they overtook them Uh, Camped at the sea by Pi Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So there's the emotion that drove what's about to happen. Fear is about to drive their changing their mind about who God is. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In other words, give us some of that slavery back. That was okay. I have a wrong view of God. Let's look at this first statement of the Israelites first. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. I'm sorry, that's the first one up up there at the top. When Pharaoh drew near, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? So what we see here is a doubting of God's character see a doubting of God's character. In other words, they, they, they're thinking of God as vindictive. That God, would really, that God would really make a promise. I'm going to take you out of this land. I'm going to give you a land of flowing with milk and honey. He would fulfill half of the promise, and then he would just leave them out there to die. That's what they think that God might actually be up to in the midst of their fear. As, as this emotion of fear grips them, They're tempted to alter their view of who God is. Friends, the reality though is it's in the moments of anxiety and fear and frustration and even anger when we need to remember who God is. We can't be adjusting our view of who God is. We have to remember the biblical picture of our God in the moments of our trials, or else we're gonna we're gonna wander off into some kind of disobedience. Gonna wander off into some kind of faithlessness. Toward him, they conceive of God as vindictive, or somehow He's out to get them. This is the temptation of of most of us, I would say, when we're in the middle of a trial. And of course, I have this I have this uh, illustration. If, if you've ever been to the fair a carnival, where there's a fun house, you know where all the mirrors are wobbly, and you walk into this fun house, right? And and certain things that should look big look really really small and certain things that look small that should look small get outsized they look really really big and so when we enter into a time of suffering when we enter into a time of trial what's happening is we're entering we're walking into the funhouse and if we don't have a solid picture in our mind of who God is before we walk into that funhouse, if we don't have it set in our minds and, and confirmed in our hearts, we're going to be tempted to think of God in a way that's either smaller in some areas than we should or bigger in some areas that we should. So I've seen this happen. I've seen people have a you know, a room temperature relationship with God, and then they walk into some kind of season of trial And they come out on the other side no longer walking with God because they have thought of Him in a way that He's not. And they've determined, I can't continue to follow a God like that. Suffering draws out these things. Sometimes suffering can be a time when when God does teach us who He is. But friends, I would say, before you enter the storm, it's best to batten down the hatches before you enter the storm. It's best, to, it's best to, to get a solid biblical picture of who God is before you walk into a season that's really going to test you. It's really going to pull on you. And then there's this second uh, mistake they make. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So they have a compromising spirit. They say, alright, we've got some trial coming up. We've got some Egyptians pressing down on us. So instead of obeying God, lock, stock, and barrel, may, why can't we just go back to what was saved? Because at least, at least the slavery is known, right? Have you ever heard people say a known problem is better than an unknown one? Right? Let it, just, just give me the problems that I'm already comfortable with instead of giving me a new set of problems. Perhaps slavery isn't so bad. See what this obedience got us? All this obedience got us with a, was a bunch of Egyptians hot on our trail, Where's the return on investment, by the way? We've obeyed God, and now uh, we've got Egyptians on one side and 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 a big body of water on the other. Where has obeying God got us now? But in the economy of God, doing what is right often hurts. Obedience doesn't often, it doesn't produce the fruit that we would like for it to right away but it will in the fullness of time. This is what it means to come to God on the basis of faith instead of on the basis of just some kind of self-serving pragmatism, you know. It would be possible for us to just say, let's just, let's just you know, in our decision making, let's just give, get a little pro-con list. We'll write the pros on this side and we'll write the cons on this side and Then we'll just kind of use our human wisdom and determine what we ought to do. And friends, if the Egyptians, I'm sorry, if the Israelites had made a pros and cons list, they probably would have just stayed in slavery. But they chose obedience instead, and now they're being tested. And what's God going to do? He's getting ready to come through for them in an incredible way. We have a tendency, though, we need to be on guard against it, to just come right up to the water's edge. Obedience and then shrink back because the consequences might be a little painful. But we see here an instance of good leadership. Moses. Moses gives some good leadership here. Look down. Let's let's pick it back up in verse 13. Right as soon as they get done saying these things about now, it would have been just better if we had stayed in our slavery. Verse 13, Moses said to the people fear not stand firm and see the salvation of the lord which he will work for you today for the egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again the lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent friends what an encouraging picture of who our god is that when the battles come that you're too weak to fight, God will fight them for us. He will come through. He's not a God that leaves his people to wither up and die. He is a God who cares. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And look what look what comes next. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, His chariots and His horsemen. So, we see here another installment of who God is. Another installment of what God wants. We see yet another display of some some good leadership this time from Moses. He's not a perfect man, but this time he does what's right. He leads the people to see things of God that they would have missed had he shrunk back. This is what... I hope to do. I hope that I, as, as a leader, as a spiritual leader, will be able to help us to, to set our minds on things that otherwise we, we might be tempted to overlook. Moses' good leadership is directed toward leading the people to see who God is more clearly. Here's what results. Look what happens among the people. They're strengthened in their faith, and God gets His glory, which is what He wants. After all. So here's the application word look not to the problem, but to the God who will glorify Himself in the solution. God will get His glory by solving the problem. So let's look at a few, a summary of a few themes that we see here. First, obedience often brings pain. This doesn't make obedience wrong. We have a tendency to think, well, if, if, if this was the way it was supposed to be, it would feel easier. But in truth, many times, doing what is right is uncomfortable. Persecution sometimes even will attend the way of the faithful. As we look in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 uh, says a few really interesting things. Uh, beginning... Verse 10, Matthew 5:10 through 12 says this, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, I've heard stories of all over the globe. People dying for the name of Jesus. Thankfully, we don't experience that here, but it does happen. It happens almost monthly in certain places in the world or even weekly. Blessed are you when they revile you and utter all kinds of wrong. So, Notice, it's not simply death that will sometimes happen to you for obeying Jesus. Sometimes it's slander. You know, I heard a story this week of a pastor at a church and his family is just under siege. I mean, because he's trying to do some healthy things at his church, his wife gets blessed out in the local Walmart. I mean, publicly. Stuff, I mean, stuff like this happens. Uh, amen. Yeah, um, But I would say... That the way that we can endure the things that come in this life because of obedience is by treasuring Christ above all. That's the only thing that would make you say Jesus' name even if it costs you your life or even if it costs you some slander, something like that. Obedience often brings pain. That doesn't make it wrong. Obedience is always right. Secondly, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the Egyptians. We see that he, he, he's able to move their hearts and, and change what they want and what they desire. Wow, that's crazy. He's, he's sovereign over nature. He can move water. Well, after all, it makes sense. He created it. Right? He, he's sovereign over human hearts. We see that in verse 4 and verse 8. I'm just trying to show my math here. And he's even sovereign over circumstances in, in, in 1317. Let's we'll see what it says there. Um, <clears throat> When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So he he changed the circumstances that the people were about to be thrust into. God gets his glory by saving people out of the waters of judgment. And we see that again here. People are saved. Remember what happens? They go through the water on dry ground. They come out the other side. The waters close in on the armies of of the Egyptians. God saves people. Enemies get punished. God gets glory. God's fame spreads and even prophecies are fulfilled. And so it happened all out of their pain. And so I could say tonight, for what grand purpose might God use our painful obedience? When we obey, when you obey in your personal life, whatever that looks like for you, when we as a church seek to obey God, sometimes it gets painful. What painful purpose, or what, what, what grand purpose could God be using our pain for? He will get His glory. And lastly, there is a Christ connection. I love these things, by the way. I want to show you a couple things from the book of Romans. He is just... And the justifier of the one who believes. So God gets His glory and salvation through judgment. Sin is going to have to be judged. But God has always provided a way out. If you look in Romans chapter 3, we learn, we learn a few things. Romans 3, 21-31 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means like a turning away, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Here's what we learn here. In order to be just, there had to be a punishment for sin because God is not going to sweep sin under the rug. So in order for God to maintain His justice, sin has to be punished somehow, somewhere. But in order to be justified, people have to be perfect. How are we going to get into the place where the perfect God exists? He can can brook no impurity in His presence. He can have none of it. He can have nothing dirty in His presence. So it can't be through our own works. It must be that we are made perfect by the works of another, by the works of someone who was perfect. Who do you know that was perfect and that took a punishment for sin? Jesus Christ. It is in the person and work of Christ that God can be just. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He still judges it. It's just that He judges it in His Son. He's just, and because of Jesus, He's the justifier of the one who has faith. It's not by your works. It's by simple belief. So, do you see this? Do you see the sinister, evil nature of thinking that your works are good enough? You you see what that's actually saying? It's actually saying that you could be better than the perfect work of Jesus. Friends, if we're trusting in anything else to let us into heaven tonight, other than the finished work and the perfect blood of Jesus, we've set ourselves up as some kind of God. But there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And it's Him who we worship. And it's Him who is just and the justifier of everyone who believes. Why don't we pray and we'll respond to God tonight. Let's pray.